If you brought your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you have, uh, turn, turn to Galatians chapter 1, right back to where we was. I told you I didn't even... I didn't even get where I intended or where I thought the Lord wanted me to go this morning. And so uh, let's go back there and let's look at them verses again. I told you tonight that, uh, that Lord willing, we'd preach about grace and peace. And so uh, let's see where the Lord will take us tonight. Galatians chapter 1. I'll give you a second longer to find it. Verse 1. Let, let's just go ahead. I want to focus on verse 3 and 4 tonight. We read verses 1 and 2, or we f- preached on verses 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, I want to focus on verses 3 and 4. Well, I'll read verse 5 with it too. Uh, verse 3 says, Grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God, and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you here this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the good day, for the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to gather here one more time tonight uh, to worship together, uh, to share your word, to sing praises to you tonight. Uh, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for... uh, the many blessings that you poured out on us. But we thank you most of all for your son Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him and give him so that we might have life and have that life eternally and abundantly. We're not worthy. We don't deserve it. But God, it was your grace, your undeserved, unmerited favor that you have shed on us. And Lord, let us not ever take it lightly, but let us always be thankful. Let us always give you all the praise and glory. Because you alone are worthy of it. And Lord, I just pray as we go forward in this service tonight, Lord, I'm just asking, Lord, have your way in your will here this evening. Uh, Lord, my prayer tonight is that you would just move by your spirit in a mighty way. God, I'm asking that you would just fill this uh, little sanctuary with your sweet holy presence. God, I pray, Lord, that you would move upon us, and uh, Lord, just to stir our hearts here tonight. God, you know where each one of us stands. You know what's going on in our lives. You know what we're struggling with, what we're dealing with, what we're facing, what's still yet ahead of us. You know what we don't even know. And so, Lord, I just pray here tonight, minister to each one that is here. Lord, help us to see what it is that you'd have us to take from your word tonight. I pray, Lord, that you'd apply it with your sweet Holy Spirit to each one of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers, but we'd be doers of your word. And God, I just ask of myself, Lord, help me here tonight. Lord, settle me. Lord, help me uh, to focus on you. Clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words. Lord, pour out your anointing from on high. Oh, God. Fill me full of your Holy Spirit. Help me to preach your message, your words, exactly the way that you'd have me to. Lord, let, every, Lord, let everyone be able to say here tonight, saying it's been good to be in the house of God. Let everyone leave here knowing that they've heard from you. We love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I, uh, 
Let me just talk to you for a second. I'm not really sure. Um, I've been trying. <laughs> I've been trying to do a better job. I've been trying to. God's called me to preach, and I know that he called me to preach. And uh, when he called me, I wasn't a good preacher. <laughs> I, I don't even see how you could hardly call me a preacher. Uh, whatever changes that have taken place since then, been by the grace of God, it's been his un undeserved, uh, it's been undeserved, unmerited favor, no doubt about that. I also realize that preaching and preaching done right is when the man that's called of God gets in touch with God submits and surrenders totally to the Holy Spirit of God and allows God to uh, really to deliver His message, to speak His Word, not some new revelation, but God's Word that we've got right here through that earthly messenger. But there's also a certain thing of how much do we avail ourselves to God? How much, uh, can I just put it this way, don't uh, misunderstand me, but how much are we giving God to work with? Okay, uh, and I've uh, consciously making an effort to give God more to work with. Period. Uh, I always, always, I, I want to be a better preacher than what I was. I want to be a better teacher than what I was. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better Christian. Uh, but the main thing that God's called me to do is preach His word, and so I don't want to be content. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? I, I don't want to just, you know, get to the point where I'm at and think, well, that's pretty good. You know, I'm, you know, as good or better than half of them out there. That's good enough. And just be content and ride out the next 40 years that way. I want to preach better tonight than I did last week. Well, I didn't preach last week, but two weeks ago and so on. You know what I'm saying? So try to give God more to work with. I, uh... I'm bad at this continuing a message thing. I just am. I end up spending all kinds of time just saying again what I said uh, in the last sermon, trying to feel like I need to remind everybody or catch everybody up. So I tried to narrow down the thought from this morning to just a couple sentences, concise statement. Started preaching the book of Galatians give a little bit of background. And you know from this morning that, that Paul had started the church, but then shortly thereafter these Judaizers had come in. They got called them nincompoops. And they were messing things up. Paul had laid a good foundation. Christ, the cornerstone of that foundation. But they were building a crooked wall on it. And Paul sends this letter. This letter is essentially the attempt to straighten that. To fix things. I think if I was to make my message this morning as concise a statement as I can, the point of it, it's this. The key difference between Paul and those Judaizers that come in afterwards is in this fact. In just how significant the coming of Christ really is how significant it really was for the changing of things. I think the Judaizers 
did not get that. And these, I told you, I struggle with what to call them. Right? A lot of people call them Jewish Christians. But they're hung up in legalism and trying to follow the law. And, and I think Judaizers is a better word for it, right? I, I, I've seen some commentaries where, where they call them Jewish Christian missionaries. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that term for them or not. Whatever they were, they were trying to insert Jesus into this continuing history of salvation. Right? What I mean by that is in, this, is in this sense right here. That everything goes on like it did before. Right? In other words, salvation for the Jews, there was a continuing revelation of God. Right? We could go back to Abraham. We do not have a Jewish people as a nation until we have Abraham who's called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. Who's called out of that, that, the, those idolaters. Right? And God calls him out of that, right? And from him, but not straight from uh, Abraham. Me and Abby was talking a little bit today, right? Uh, Abraham had another uh, son also, Ishmael, actually older uh, than, than Isaac, right? And, and Ishmael is fighting right now. you watching it on the news. That's the descendants of Ishmael who are fighting with uh, the other descendants of Abraham, specifically the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Straight through that line, right? The descendants of Jacob. There's the 12 tribes of Israel. It is them and it is the descendants of Ishmael that you see that are trying to, that are, you know, that's fighting over there right now. The, for the Jews, there's a continuing history of salvation, starting with circumcision, right? It, it, it's with Abraham that that is revealed. That's the sign of the covenant, right? The covenant that God makes with Abraham. Remember, a deep sleep comes over him. That whole thing takes place, right? And the sign of that covenant is circum uh, circumcision, right? It starts from there and it goes on from there, right? The next progressive step in the revelation of God, right, to the Jewish people is, is, is the law that is given through Moses, right? And then you've got more, they've got more specifics, right? They have got uh, certain uh, things that they've got to do, certain things that they, that they cannot do, sacrifices to offer whenever they do sin, right? It is the, this continuing revelation of God to them, right? For them, it is the continuation history of salvation, right? We go on from there. We've got the temple period, right? And, and so we see actually the tabernacle, and then uh, we got the time of David and Solomon in the temple, but then we've got the time of exile. They can't offer sacrifices sacrifices when they're in exile, right? They can't fulfill a lot of the laws, right? And, and so anyways, it's this continuing revelation, this continuing history of salvation for the Jewish people. And then we have the second temple period, whenever God brings them back, right? Brings them back out of bondage, right? And, and so the temple is rebuilt and it is restored and then the sacrifices are offered again. And you have this continuing history. And for them... It's just one thing added to the next. It's okay. If you're going to be saved, then you've got to, uh, you've got to be circumcised. And now we know that you have to keep the law. And then here is Jesus, and he's the Messiah, right? And this group didn't have any problem with accepting him as the Messiah that had been prophesied, that had been foretold. But they're just adding Christ also into this continuing history, into this situation. Yeah, the Messiah has come, 
But really, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really, you know, the way they are presenting things, the way they are thinking about things, it doesn't really dramatically change things. And Paul is saying, you are wrong. You are, I mean, Paul's argument to the churches throughout the the region of Galatia, right? His argument here in Galatians is that you are underestimating what has changed with the coming of Christ. You're you're underestimating how this has, what this has done and how this turns everything on its ear. I told you this morning, the key to this, grace and peace. I told you this morning, grace is the way to life, right? It's the only way that we're saved is by the grace of God, right? We put our faith in Christ, it, it, it's, it, it, that, but that's it. It's God's grace, his undeserved, uh, unmerited favor. But grace is not only the way to life, grace is the way of life. For the Christian. It doesn't end there, right? It's the way to life, and it is the way of life. If you don't continue to live in God's grace and by His grace, then you'll end up falling into legalism. And your salvation goes from being a joy to being a burden. It goes from something that you look forward to the things that you do, like coming out and worshiping God, like getting into the Word and, and reading your Bible. It goes from something that you look forward to doing and you long to do, right? That's an intimate, important, vital part of your day to something that's on a checklist that you just make sure that you get marked off your checklist so that you're still in God's good graces and that he, you think He'll still bless you. That's legalism. That's doing things and thinking that we deserve God's favor because of it. It's getting what you think you deserve. It's doing things to earn God's favor. That's legalism. That's not what grace is. So in verses 3 and 4, Specifically in verse 3, he says, Grace and peace. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Told you that there's a reason he hits this so early, right? There's not the typical opening in this letter. There's not the, you know, oh, I'm so thankful for you and all that that Paul does in so many of these other letters. He's just getting right after it here. Uh, First of all, I think he's making the point, and I think I said this this morning, that salvation comes purely by God's grace, and it results in peace with God. Haven't you ever heard that term before where somebody, you know, has talked about making peace with God? It almost seems a little old-timey at this point, but it's actually very biblically accurate. It's maybe something that shouldn't be old-timey and should be modern, right? Making making our peace with God. Somebody better make their peace with God, right? So, So salvation comes purely by grace and results in peace with God, right? That is essentially the cause and the effect of the gospel, right? Summed up in two words, grace and peace. And so when Paul uses the term grace in the opening of this letter, he's not just being polite. 
He's reminding these Christians that they've experienced salvation through the grace of God, which Christ has made available to them. So here here is the first thing I want to get at. I want to thoroughly answer the question, what is grace? What is grace? We hear that word used a lot. We throw that word out as Christians a lot. We love, oh, oh, I bet bet everybody here would say one of their favorite hymns is Amazing Grace. Everybody loves the song Amazing Grace. Everybody likes to talk about God's Amazing Grace. Everybody likes to talk about how uh, God has had grace, uh, has shown grace to me, right? He has, you know, uh, it's only by the grace of God that we are saved, or that I am saved, or that I'm still here today. That's all true. But do you really, really understand what it is that you're saved? Or are you just throwing out there a phrase that sounds good and feels right? Or repeating what you've heard. I think the word gets thrown around a lot without having a good understanding of what it means. So let's take a minute. Let's get kind of technical for just a minute. Let's dig in for a minute. Why? Because the concept of grace is one of the most significant ideas. One of the most profound ideas in all of the scriptures. Look, not I was actually going to say it's one of the most significant ideas found here in the book of Galatians, but that wouldn't be fair. It's not just in the book of Galatians, in the entire Bible. It's one of the most significant ideas. The reason, I think, I think to really get the heart out of it, is grace is God's love in action. I think that's what makes it profound. But if let's look at the word grace. Now I've given you kind of simple definitions. I've given you easy to remember definitions in the past, and that's good. And, and they're, they're, I think they're accurate, or I wouldn't have given them to you. But I think, it, I think it helps to know a little bit more about what it means, what the Bible means when it uses the word grace, and what we ought to mean, and why we ought to understand it. So first of all, the word that we find grace, uh, translated as grace in our Bible, is the Greek word is in, I don't know, my Greek pronunciations is, I, don't, I, I can't do it, it's charis. C-H-A-R-I-S, okay, is um, the English equivalent of the Greek word that is translated Greek, uh, grace. And it comes from a family, the root of that comes from a family of Greek words which describe what is good, desirable, pleasant, or beneficial, right? The, it, its word family is always used to describe things that are good, things that are desirable, things that are pleasant, things that are beneficial. The actual word, that charis word, if you look in Classic Greek literature, which is written in about the same time frame as the, as the New Testament is written, approximately, 
It is, that word, Taurus, is used to describe goodwill, kindness, or graciousness to one in need. Think about it. Goodwill, kindness, uh, what is good, what is pleasant, what is beneficial to one that is in need. Who's in need? God? No. Us. Us. Think about what, what all is in that word. Here we are. Who? Who is good enough to get to heaven on their own? Who is able? None. Who is righteous? None. Who seeks after God? None. All of this, your salvation, my salvation, the very urge to seek after God is the result of God's grace. I always use the definition, it's, I don't know, easy for me to remember, unmerited or undeserved favor. Getting what we don't deserve. I wrote it down and brought it with me. Here is a definition from a study Bible that I have at home. It says, Paul frequently stresses that salvation comes as God's free gift, a matter of grace and not of works, made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. I Look, that's what Galatians is saying here. This commentator goes on and states that grace is the undeserved favor by which alone sinners are received and cleansed from sin and guilt. Right? From sin and guilt. <laughs> it is undeserved. It is unmerited. We were the ones in need. We could do nothing to deserve it or to earn it. Now, let's put that together with peace. What is peace in the biblical sense here, right? So, so I think, first of all, as Paul is writing to these Galatians, and he, and he uses this word, right? He says grace to, to be to you and peace, right? He says grace and peace to you. I think that term peace would have been very special, very meaningful, to these early Christians, right? Because remember, they lived in a world which was often filled with suffering, persecution, and death. I mean, they are surrounded by wickedness. The word that they use here for peace uh, has its roots from the Hebrew word shalom. You ever heard that word before, shalom? I have a few times. Maybe you have too, but that's the, that's the Hebrew word for peace. That's exactly what the ones that read this would, that's the root of it. That's what, they would, that's what they would think of. That's what they would come up with. That same commentator defined peace as the condition of well-being when God is our friend and all is well with us. So in other words, it's indicating much more than just the absence of conflict, 
right? When we're praying for peace in Jerusalem, what are we praying for? Ceasefire. Absence of conflict. That's probably, truthfully, what we kind of think of when we think of peace, is the absence of conflict. And that's true, that's part of the definition of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about peace, but it's more than just that. It only occurs when we get things right with God. That's the old saying about making peace with, you know, peace with your maker, right? Making peace with God. It occurs when we have a right relationship with God, when that is established, right? We have peace with God when our sins have been forgiven, when there's no longer that sin barrier between us and and God. And also with that comes an inward peace, right? That can only come from a right relationship with God. I hope every one of you are Christians here tonight. I don't know that you are. Uh, If not, tonight's a good night to become one, all right? Uh, But let me talk about uh, my experience for just a minute. I remember what it was like before I got saved. Now, there's some of you sitting here that probably got saved whenever you were young, whenever you were five years old, six years old, seven years old, eight years old, ten years old, and maybe older than that, but you don't remember what it was like before. And I praise the Lord for that. Honestly, I mean, what a blessing to never remember what it was like to be lost. But for those of you that do remember, can I remind you of one thing real quick? Do you remember the difference from before you got saved to after you got saved? No, I mean, seriously, do you remember that unexplainable feeling on the inside? There's no other way to explain it. A sense of peace that passes all understanding. That absolutely floods your soul. You go from... Look, I started to put a lot of things on this and say worried about things and, and angry and you know all that kind of stuff anxiety but you know what none of that's fair and none of it does justice I can't put description on the feeling before but I can describe to you afterwards I'm not a music person I'm not a singer you know I'm not one to just go around singing or singing in the shower I got saved on a Friday night I worked Saturday at the building supply. We had to work every other Saturday then. Revival was going on. I got saved Friday night of a revival. Well, we need to start praying this. We need to be happy. We need to be talking about revival. Um, I got off work Saturday, right? Six days that week, right? We worked 10-hour days. 
So that's 60 hours. And at that time, at the building spoil, I'm sure it's still that way, but things were busy. A lot of houses being built, and it was hard labor. It wasn't easy work. It was hard work. And I can remember rushing home, excited, there's that joy, getting to go to church again, hear the word of God preached, sing, lift, lift up my voice, singing, you know, I mean, all that thing, everything at worship, right? Didn't really understand all those things, but I was excited about it. I couldn't wait to get there. And I'm in the shower, and all of a sudden, this, I just this realization come over me, I'm singing. I'm in the shower singing. I don't sing in the shower. I don't, do, I don't sing. I just don't do those kinds of things. I am singing in the shower. And I'm just going to share with you my raw thoughts in the moment because I remember them very clearly still. When I realized what I was doing, I thought, I'm singing. Why am I singing? I don't know that I formed it in my mind this way, but I kind of was saying, you know, asking myself, well, you're singing because you're so happy. Why are you so happy? And, And I'm like, well, I'm... The first thought, now this is just my raw thought, was there was no more fear of death. There was no more fear of death. I knew there was no doubt beyond a shadow of a doubt. If I was to fall over dead right then, if God was to decide to take me home in that moment, I knew where I was going. And I was fine. I was. Ha- I mean, yeah, would I miss my kids? And what? Sure, absolutely. But I wasn't even thinking about that in the moment. There was peace with God. Peace that I had never, ever experienced before. I can't put words on to describe before how I felt, but I, can, I, but I was not right with God, and I did not have that peace. It only came after that I got things right with God and had that right relationship with him. Peace. When the Bible talks about peace, that's what it's talking about. So, the barrier, it's gone. There's nothing coming between you and a personal relationship with God. There is an inward peace that only comes after having a right relationship with God. And can I just throw one little thing in there for free? Only once that takes place, when we are finally now at peace with God, can we finally be at peace with ourselves and be at peace with others. Only then. Only then. And so Paul reminds these Christians that their relationship with God is not built on circumcision. It's not built on food laws. It's not built on a checklist of doing all these certain religious things that in themselves are very good. But that's not what the relationship is built on. The foundation upon which it is built is God's grace. 
And only as long as they continue to rely on God's grace, only as long as they continue to build on the foundation that Paul had laid there, Christ being the chief cornerstone thereof, could they enjoy peace with God and with one another. Now, verse 4. He has he wished them grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, okay, who is the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins? Jesus gave himself for our sins. That he, that Jesus might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Let's, let's define a few words there. Deliver. Deliver. It means to rescue. To free. Okay? Present evil world. Let's look at that phrase. What is it referring to when it says present evil world? The easiest um, definition that I can probably give is our fallen world. That's our present evil world. It's a, it's a state where sin has dominion. Okay? That is the present evil world. That is our fallen world. It is a world where sin has dominion. Another way to say it, um, and I have heard people... I've heard people get all spun up about this, and it's, it's silliness. They need to dig in and study a little more, uh, and they'll understand that it's silliness. The word that is translated world here is the Greek word, I think you say it, ion. A-I-O-N. It is literally the origin of our English word, eon. A-E-O-N. Don't take my word for it. Go home, get out your dictionary on your phone, not right this second, but afterwards, and pull up the dictionary, however you do that. Look up the word eon, A-E-O-N. Scroll to the bottom of the definition or look in your dictionary to the bottom of the definition where it gives the history of the word, and it will tell you it will give a Latin word, and then the root and the history of that, the origin of both the English and the Latin word, is the Greek word ion, A-I-O-N. It is actually translated in um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, and, Col- and Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. You can flip over there and look at it. Both of those places, it's translated as age. When it says world, it, is, it doesn't necessarily mean world as in like the earth. It means world as in this present time, this present dispensation of God, this present age, if you want to use that word, the Bible does, the King James Bible uses it at least twice that I know of off the top of my head, this present evil uh, age, world, time period, eon, long period of time, that we live in right now. 
So what he is saying is this world, this age, this time period of sin and judgment leading up to the second coming of Christ. That changes right at the second coming of Christ, or that's the way I understand the scriptures, right? So, so there, there's an interesting thing here, because in the mind of, of a Jew, there is two time periods, two ages, two dispensations, two worlds, if you use this, trans, if you use this wording that's used here in this verse. Um, in their mind, there's the present evil one, and then there is a future one after the Messiah comes and fixes everything. But what is so... That's why you hear the language in the scripture about this world and then the world to come, this age and the age to come. That's why you hear that language, right? That's what it's talking about. That's what it's referring to. Okay, so whenever we, so whenever we look at this, what is interesting about the kingdom of Christ, have you ever wondered how Jesus talked about that his kingdom is now, it's present, but yet it's future also? Because he's talking to them about this present evil world, this present evil age, and yet the perfect future one that is still yet to come, but yet with the coming of Christ, it changes everything, and these two ages actually overlap a little bit. That's the unique time period that we live in right now. It's unbelievable. We live in the absolute... There is... Look... From the beginning of time to right now, there is no better time to be a Christian than this time right now. You live in the most unique period that has ever existed. And here we are in both of these worlds at the same time. And getting ready to see, I feel like any moment, uh, hallelujah, you better be ready tonight because it might happen tonight, uh, the coming of Christ, the end of the present evil age, which as Christians he's already delivered us from. That's what the scripture says. Man, do you not see the signs of the times? Do you not see what is happening? So here, He's making a statement that Christ has come, that he did come, and that he, to, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Paul is saying that in order to, how do I want to say this? In order to set us free from the present evil world, from the present evil age, Christ gave himself for our sins. And he done this in obedience to the will of God. Now, I want you to notice here, and I, I'm, I'm getting ready to close. In the greeting. Paul did not simply, I've said this like three times today. He did not simply just wish them Blessings from the Father and from Christ. He didn't do that. Instead, he draws their attention straight to the purpose for which the Father sent the Son. 
And as he put it here, Jesus was sent to deliver us, right? To free us, to rescue us from this present evil world, from this present evil uh, sin-filled where sin has dominion, time period, age, world that we're in. That word deliver, right, means rescue, free, right? What it echoes of, what it should remind them of and should remind us of, is God's rescuing Israel from Egypt. Have you not ever thought about that before? Have you not ever realized that before? Egypt is a type of this present evil world. Egypt represents that. The nation of Israel was in bondage. They were slaves in Israel. Listen to me. Everybody in this present evil world is in bondage to sin. God called Moses, and then God sent Moses. That's probably where I should start with this analogy. God sent Moses to deliver them from that present evil age, condition, world that they were in, to deliver them from the bondage that they were in. As we've studied Matthew, we saw on Wednesday night, right, that the... the, the portrait that is given there is Jesus is the new Moses. God sent his son, Jesus, to deliver us from bondage, from the bondage of sin. So when he says this, he is implying that the world in general, not, I mean, yes, the nation of Israel too in particular, but in general, the world has been living under a form of slavery that's comparable to the time that Israel spent in Egypt as slaves. So what's my point? What am I getting at here? The gospel that Paul went and preached to them that these Judaizers has come along and corrupted. The gospel is God's, how do I say, rescue operation. It's God's planned and executed, right, uh, operation to, to free believers from sin's condemnation, from the bondage of sin, from slavery, right? From sin's slavery. Jesus literally paid the, the price, the full cost, right? Some use the word ransom, right? I don't know if that's the best word to use or not, but Jesus paid the price. He paid the punishment on Calvary's cross for our sins. And then it doesn't end there. He didn't just die for us, right? Because he was both the perfect man and perfect God, 100% man, 100% God, right? That Because of that, the Father raised him from the dead. That's what it says in verse 1. And by placing our faith in Christ, we're receiving something that we didn't earn, something that we didn't deserve. We're, just, we're receiving that unearned mercy, 
right? Of, of the full payment our, that we owed. He didn't know it, that we owed for sin. As well as the uh, unmerited favor, right? That's grace. Of victory over death. Through Christ's resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. Jesus died for our sins. And he rose again. Listen to me. That right there, that is the core of the gospel message. And my point to you tonight is by grace. Right? Remember I said earlier that Paul's point is that this present world is not dominated by God. Instead, it's dominated by sin and Satan. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, this says it refers to Satan there as being the God of this world. World, there's that same word, that aeon word, right? The, of this evil present world, this evil sin-filled time that we live in right now. But by his grace, sin no longer has dominion over us. By his grace, we are freed. We are rescued, right? By his grace, we have been rescued. By his grace, we have been delivered from this present evil world. And we've been delivered. We've been freed. We've been rescued, right? I like delivered. We've been delivered from the hold that sin had on us. I still remember when sin had a hold on me. What does that mean to us? You might say, uh, Preacher, I've been a Christian for a long time. What does that mean to me? Well, I'll tell you what it means to you. I said earlier <laughs> that grace is the way to life and it's the way of life. So what does that mean to you? That means that we no longer have to live like this world. We no longer have to we no longer have to live like this world, pursuing what this world pursues, loving what this world loves, indulging in what this world indulges in. We're free. That's what I'm trying to tell you tonight. We are free in the Son, free indeed, free to live a life that honors God, free to walk in the power of the Spirit of God, free to live as we were intended, as God intended for us to live, and that is in Christ, not in sin. God is calling us to a life much better than anything. I promise you, anything that this world has to offer, and he's delivered us, he's rescued us, he has made us free to live it. Do you get what I'm saying tonight? Free to live it. If you are saved, redeemed, bought by the blood of the Lamb, name written in the Lamb's book of life on your way to heaven, the only thing stopping you from living the life that God wants you to live, desires for you to live, called you to live, rescued you, delivered you, freed you to live, the only thing stopping you is you. You're the only thing 
standing in the way. I want to I, I share this story. And this last thing, Jennifer, my patient's story, come play. Um, I come across it a little while back. It's old. I'm going to guess World War I time period. Okay? Keep that in mind. How the story goes is it, it actually refers to the person as a, the, that tells the story as an Arab chief. Okay? Um, I, I don't know that they're still in tribes and have chiefs like that now. But that's who was telling the story then. And it was a story about a spy who was captured. And then, of course, I mean, you know what happens whenever any nation, right? When they capture a, capture a spy, you know, the punishment is, is death. It's execution. It, I mean, it always is, universally. I don't care where it happens. I don't care if, if we catch a spy here or they catch one of our spies over there or whatever. You, you name it, right? Everybody, right? The punishment for that is death. They take it seriously. So the spy was captured, and he was sentenced to death, right? Uh, I think maybe it was probably a wartime, because that would make sense on the spies, and it's a general, right? So it's like a court-martial and a general that does this. And it's actually a general in the Persian army. And th- but this general, he was, um, he was an interesting fellow. And he had this strange custom. Writer, it was considered strange. Um, he always give a condemned criminal, no matter what it was, whether it was something small or whether it was something like spying, espionage. He always give them a choice. He always give them a choice between the sentence handed down, you know, that was normal for that. In this case, it's firing squad. He always give them the choice between that and between what they referred to as the big black door. I can only imagine that it must have been a big black door. That makes sense, doesn't it? Here's, here's the thing about it. The big black door represented an unknown punishment. He always give them the choice. So, as the moment came for this time for this spy's execution, the spy is brought to the Persian general, and he asks the question that he always asks. He says, what will it be? Firing squad or the big black door? spy hesitated for a long time. It's a hard decision. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? What's behind the big black door? What is the unknown? Is it some sort of torture? Is it, you know, having, well, I won't even get into it. I don't want to get anything gross, but you can imagine, right? Things that go through his mind. So, on the other hand, Firing squad, that's quick. That's painless, pretty much. So he chose the firing squad. And moments later, shots rang out. 
The execution has taken place. The general turns to his aide, a young man that had been assigned to him recently. He turns to his aide, this, this young man, and he says, they always prefer the known to the unknown. He says, that's just typical human behavior. People are afraid of the unknown. But yet we still, we give him the choice. The aid takes all this in. and He's obviously an intelligent young man and he's curious. And brave enough or maybe dumb enough to ask what others maybe weren't brave enough to ask. He says, so what's behind the big black door? What lies behind it? Freedom, the general replied. He said, and I've only known a few brave enough to take it. Think about that for a minute. You know what stopped me from getting saved for years? All the things that I imagined that life would be like afterwards. Unknown. Do you know deep down I knew what the consequence was of my life apart from Christ? Deep down there was no question. I, that wasn't the unknown. Would you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you the opportunity to come tonight. Spirit of God dealing with you if you've got a need, if you've got a burden. Would you come? Whatever it is, don't miss this opportunity. Come.